friends, before I have you stand this morning, I have a request for you. We leave tomorrow for student camp, and uh, we are excited. Some of us are excited, and uh, we have a little bit over 100 students going and about 18 leaders who will be investing in them throughout the week. So we are coveting your prayers. That is my request for you, that you would be in prayer for the students, for the leaders throughout the entirety of the week, uh, because we know that we need it. And so our hope is that they would grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our prayer. We want them to be uh, deepened in their discipleship and their love for the Lord and their love for others. And so please be in prayer. If you want, you can actually pray our theme verse, which is John 17, 17. uh, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so our theme for the entire week is that they would learn what it means to be sanctified by truth. So that's my request of you. Please be in prayer for us throughout the entirety of the week. If you want to join us in the morning, um, it's not as early as the Mexico trip. You are welcome to come. Anybody from the church is welcome. Uh, We'll probably be praying around 8.30 uh, before we get in the vehicle. So around 8.30 in the morning, you're welcome to come and pray and see the students off to camp. With that said, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We actually have two scripture readings this morning. The first is found in Romans 15, verse 4. Paul writes, For whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction, so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the Scriptures. And our second reading is found in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 to 4. The Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to the entire Israelite community and tell them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you is to respect his mother and father. You are to keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make cast images of gods for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. Would you pray with me? Father, we as your people are gathered this morning as your church to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Father, we come to you knowing that we have broken your commands, just as it says in Leviticus there. But Father, we thank you that we can look to Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law perfectly and who died in our place and rose again. Help us to recognize that we do not have a righteousness of our own, but we look to him completely and fully. And Father, we are at the end of Judges and in a very hard passage. So would you humble us by your spirit? Would you help us to sit under your word and not above it? Speak through Pastor Patrick. May his words be your words for this congregation. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Church, you may have a seat. Hey, we have a great opportunity. As you know, if you've been here a couple of years, we've had the opportunity to send out missionaries from our church that consider this their home church, whether they grew up here or whether they came here a couple of years ago. Well, this is the next iteration of it. Would you welcome Maddie Popwell to the stage for me? So Maddie, you've grown up here. You know, you've been at this church longer than I have. And so you have a lot of street cred here. All right. I know that. Now, Maddie, you, the Lord has put, given you a vision, a calling. Can you share with the church of what the Lord is doing in your life? Yeah, so the Lord put um, the calling to long-term missions on my heart a long time ago. Um, but for the past two years, I've been studying at a missions training school in Minnesota. And as a part of that program, I actually have the opportunity to serve on a 16-month global internship this upcoming year. So in about two weeks, I'll be headed overseas to North Africa Um, where I'm going to be serving underneath long-term missionaries there. 
And while I'm there, I'm going to be working with the local church, doing some church planting and other ministries. And then I'll also be teaching at an international school, working with the kindergartners. That's fantastic. Isn't that amazing? So there's probably some specific prayers. I'm assuming excited, anxious, um, uncertain. What can we be praying for? What are the specific things that we as your sending church need to remember? Yeah, um, obviously safety while me and my team are over there, but also um, just be praying that I will continue to um, rely on the Lord's strength and not my Mm -hmm. own while I'm over there, that I'll continue to seek his face and put him first daily. Um, And then while I'm traveling, just be praying for um, peace in my transition as I'm adjusting to a new culture over there. Um, How about your mom? Pray for your mom and your dad too. Should we pray for them? Yeah, I'm sure they'll miss me. (laughs) All right, there's a many things as well. There's, there's a financial need and a burden. Um, now you're supported, you're, you have support raised, you're going, but there's still some other expenses that we might be able to help out with and consider. So how, if the Lord moves us to financially support you, how should we do that? Yeah, there are a few different ways that people can support. So I have a giving link where you can give online or you can send in checks. Um, if you want more information on how you can help send me and my team, uh, you can reach out to me, my information's in the church directory, or you can reach out to the missions team and they'll connect you to me. Fantastic. Church, I think it's a blessing that God has compassion for his creation and image bearers in North Africa that you and I have never met, but that compassion has led one of our own to go and share the gospel. So will you join me in prayer for Maddie? Our Lord and our God, we, we trust you. We trust that you have placed within Maddie's heart and mind the desire to take the gospel into a region of the world where there's few who believe. God, would you fill her with great amounts of grace and wisdom that she may be able to dispense the gospel and the love and compassion that resides in your heart for the people of North Africa? And would you give her encouragement and strength? Would you also protect her, guide her, and set in stone the desire of your will for her life, whether full-time and long-term missionaries is within her future or it's something else? So God, in this time, will you equip her in a powerful way, and would you help us to be faithful in remembering her in our prayers? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Maddie. Can you thank her again? I think that's going to be the highlight of today. All right, just giving you a heads up. This sermon is going to be explicit. This sermon is going to touch on things that will probably cause you to feel unnerved, discomfort, or uncomfortable. It might even bring back some memories that you wish to hide and get rid of from things that have happened long ago. And so I'm giving you a heads up and a warning. Last week, um, Pastor Ryan began the series, a short mini-series within the book of Judges, There Is No King in Israel. This is part two. And with it being part two, I also had Ryan read from us Leviticus 19. This is where Moses retells or reissues God's law to his people. The law is the standard by which all people, especially his though, the Jews, are to be evaluated. In order for us to recognize the depravity of Judges 19, 20, and 21, which is our text this morning, and for it to have a deeper effect in our life, we need Leviticus 19 to compare it with. And so I want you to read a little bit of what Ryan read, and I'm going to read some more of this section of the reissuing, the giving of God's law and standard for his people. And so read with me in Leviticus 19. And there's enough of them. The Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to the entire Israelite community and tell them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you is to respect his mother and father. 
You are to keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to worthless idols or make cast images of gods for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. When you reap the harvest of your land, you are not to reap out to the very edge of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. I am the Lord your God. Do not steal. Do not act deceptively or lie to one another. Do not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages due a hired worker must not remain with you until morning. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind. You are to fear your God. I am the Lord. Do not act unjustly when deciding a case. Do not be partial to the poor or give preference to the rich. Judge your neighbor fairly. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not jeopardize your neighbor's life. I am the Lord. Do not harbor hatred against your brother. Rebuke your neighbor directly, and you will not incur guilt because of him. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Do not debase your daughter by making her a prostitute, or the land will be prostituted and filled with depravity. Keep my Sabbaths and revere my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or consult spiritists, or you will be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. You are to rise in the presence of the elderly and to honor the old. Fear your God. I am the Lord. When an alien resides with you and in your land, you must not oppress him. You will regard the alien who resides with you as the native born among you. You are to love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Keep all my statutes. Obey all my ordinances and do them. I am the Lord. This is the standard. And there is no other. And it is good. But is it weighty? Who can read that and withstand the weight and the burden that that places on our soul? It's been on mine for about two weeks. And I'm ready to give it to you. Very clearly, what the Lord is presenting to his people is that he is their leader. He is their sovereign Lord. It's never been in question. Yet they've become, a way, they become wayward subjects, abandoning not one, but every command listed above. The law is the standard by which we need to compare ourselves. Pastor Ryan introduced two things last week that we continue in today's message. First, the book of Judges, and especially these last five chapters, are a mirror. Simply reading the horrific accounts of wickedness and ridiculing or, or judging those involved is missing what the author intends. We must examine our life to find where we are like with the people of Judges. And point number two, his main point last week continues to us today. We need a righteous king. But I want to add upon what he established last week that we need a righteous king who will save us. But from what? What wickedness? What do we need salvation from? And so what I'd like to do, we don't have the time to be able to read these three chapters. And in fact, when you do read these chapters, they will edify and bless your soul, but they'll lead you to a conclusion that the author might not intend given 2,000 years removed. So I want to recount the story of Judges 19, 20, and 21 for you in bullet point fashion. 
Because the author intends for you to read them all in one setting as a domino effect, cause and effect. One thing led to another thing, which led to another thing. And I'm going to take the advice of, of Daniel Block, uh, my commentator, who actually listed everything in reverse order. We're going to start at the end and work our way back to the beginning. And so as I'm reading this to you, I want you to picture and envision this is what's possible when there is no king in Israel. And so the end of chapter 21 is where we'll begin. 200 Benjamite men capture and abduct 200 female dancers at Shiloh and take them to be their wives because the elders of Israel gave them permission to do so. The elders of Israel gave 200 men permission to capture the 200 young women because Jabesh-Gilead could not provide enough wives for 600 men. Those 600 were all that remained of the tribe of Benjamin. Jabesh-Gilead could, not pro- could provide only 400 wives for the Benjamites because that's all the virgins that they had within that town. The Israelites found them because they slaughtered that city for their refusal to fight against Benjamin. The Israelites went to Jabesh-Gilead to get wives for Benjamin because they refused to fight and because they felt sorry for the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites felt sorry for the tribe of Benjamin because they had reduced their tribe to 600 men in a series of three battles, resulting in the death of tens of thousands. The Israelites had engaged Benjamin in battle because Benjamites refused to deliver into their hands the wicked inhabitants of Gibeah. The Israelites demanded an explanation after they had gathered in response. Oh, excuse me, seven. The Israelites had demanded to the deliverance of Gibeah into the hands because of the Levites' testimony concerning the Gibeans' wicked conduct. The Israelites had demanded an explanation after they were called to gather in response to receiving fragments of a woman's body cut up and delivered to them. The Levite had cut up the woman's body because she had been gang-raped and left for dead at his doorstep. The woman had been gang-raped because that man, the Levite, had delivered her into the hands of the wicked men of Gibeah. The man had given his concubine to the wicked men of Gibeah because the host and himself feared for their lives and their own self-preservation. The Levite's host felt obligated to protect that man because he found the Levite his servant, his concubine and animals, in the city square. The Levite was in Gabeah to spend the night because he was on a journey and couldn't make it home before nightfall. The Levite was on a journey because he had gone to get his concubine. The Levite needed to get his concubine because she had left him. She had left him because she was angry with him. She was angry with him because everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in Israel. That is our story. And just like that crying, that's how I feel in reading this. It is wicked. There is no good here. What do we do with a story when we get to the end and all we cry out for is vengeance and to wipe them from the face of the earth? What is the author intending for us to do? Well, look into it as a mirror, but also to desire for a righteous king to save us. And so now that you know the events that take place in these three chapters, what will the righteous king save us from? And the first thing, a righteous king will save us from an inhospitable world. The Levite, when he left to get his concubine, went to 
his father-in-law's house where she was. Now he shows us the picture of the ideal host, one whose generosity borders on oppressive. And we're to compare his actions with that of the town of Gabeah. When the Levite, the concubine, his servant enter the town, no one offers to dink them into their home. As we read in Leviticus, the sojourner is to be treated as a family member. We were created, what is God conveying? That with hospitality in our DNA, willing to give to another without question, knowing that we are often God's instruments of provision in the life of others. And so the inverse of that is true. We should count on our fellow image bearers in their kindness and generosity of giving to us what comes from God. And so the people of Gabeah disobey God's command by ignoring the traveling party. The author clearly elevates the irony of the Levite's words in verse 12. Read this with me. He says, But the master replied to him, We will not stop at a foreign city where there are no Israelites. Let's move on to Gabeah. What's the irony? We're not going to go to the ancient city of Jerusalem because that's where the Canaanites live and we'll be treated like Canaanites. Instead, let's go to the Israelite city and we'll be welcome there. It doesn't happen. The author is intending us to recognize there is no hospitality in this world with sin. Point number two, we need a righteous king who will save us from new Sodom. The Sodom I'm referring to is a Sodom from Genesis 19. That city was destroyed by God because of their vile, vile wickedness. Our story in Judges 19 and the story in Genesis 19 are actually mere images of each other. In fact, the author of Judges uses a quarter of the same Hebrew words and 24 expressions that are identical in meaning and order of both stories. So if you were to read them back to back, what is the author making? He's making it abundantly clear. This is like that. Gabeah is like Sodom. This is what has been transformed in the people of God. Let's read this together. Look at what Judges says, Judges 19, 22. While they were enjoying themselves, so this is the host that actually took the Levite and his uh, traveling companions in, while they were enjoying themselves, all of a sudden, wicked men of the city surrounded the house and beat on the door. They said to the old man who was the owner of the house, bring out the man who came to your house so that we can have sex with him. Now let's look at Genesis. Before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house. They called out to Lot and said, Where are the men that came to you tonight? Send them out so that we can have sex with them. The same iniquity found in Sodom now resides in the people of God. The same wickedness that destroyed a city now is commonplace in the land. But what evil specifically is here? What do we need saved from? Well, the first thing, we need a righteous king to save us from new Sodom's moral indifference and self-preservation. Look at verse 19, or chapter 19, 23 through 24. This is what the old man says, says to these men who are demanding to have sex with the, with the Levite. Please, don't do this evil, my brothers. After all, this man has come into my house. Don't commit this horrible outrage. Everything is good up until that point. Verse 24, here, let me bring out my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Abuse them and do whatever you want to them. But don't commit this outrageous thing against this man. The old man is truly morally confused. He seems to be a good host, but he's the one who conceives of the idea of mistreating the concubine and his virgin daughter. Don't do this foolish, vile, wicked thing. Don't, don't do that wickedness. Instead, do what you think is good to these women. 
genuine hospitality evaporates, and instead of doing what's good in the Lord's eyes, the man does what's good in his own, self-preservation. How do I get out of this? Which leads to next, we need a righteous king to save us from new Sodom's rape, abuse, and discard. They raped her and abused her all night until morning, and at daybreak, they let her go. The narrator rapidly and graphically portrays the depth of evil in the heart of the people of Gabeah. There is no good here. Everything the Bible includes, it doesn't um, condone. And you might wonder, in looking at this, where is the narrator's judgment? Where is he saying this is wrong, evil, and wicked? He is. He's comparing it to Sodom. He's made that clear. The depth. Excuse me, the depth of human depravity on display is a sober acknowledgement that without a righteous king leading us as his people, this action of rape, of abuse, and discarding will seem good in someone's eyes. This seemed good in the eyes of these people. We also need a righteous king to save us from Sodom's callousness to sin and suffering. So the man seized his concubine and took her outside to them. The man, the Levite, the husband, took his wife and handed her over to her abusers. In verse 27, when her master got up in the morning, opened the doors of the house and went out to leave on his journey, there was the woman, his concubine, collapsed near the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he says to her, get up, let's go. Securing his own safety, what does the Levite do? He goes to sleep that night. Without concern for his concubine, he prepares to leave, and upon seeing her lifeless body on the threshold, he says, get up, let's go. It is okay, as I am, to detest this man. I hate what he has done. A priest of Israel... A minister of God for his people has neither the compassion nor the care for the sin that killed his wife nor the suffering she endured. It's just a Tuesday. Get up. Let's go. When we distance ourselves from the holy standard of God's law, we distance ourselves from the richness of life found in being obedient to that law. The distance from godliness leads our hearts to find satisfaction in whatever we can conjure the wicked men of Gabeah, the callousness of the Levite. And so the opposite effect is our hearts will eventually become callous, if not blind, to sinful acts done around us or to us. We ultimately will lose compassion for God's image bearers. New Sodom truly isn't just in Gabeah. Now we realize it's in the heart of all of the people in these stories. And yet that's not the end of his callous actions. The same callousness that led him to hand over his wife and go to sleep to her abusers leads him when he gets home to dismember her body, to cut it into pieces and to scatter it throughout the nation of Israel for revenge, not justice. We need a righteous king, number three, to save us from manipulation. The Israelites asked, tell us, how did this evil act happen? Citizens of Gibeah came to attack me and surrounded the house at night. They intended to kill me, but they raped my concubine, and she died. 
Outrage spreads over Israel because of what has happened. 400,000 warriors come to Mizpah along with their leaders. These tribes gather to bring justice upon the men of Gabeah and Benjamin as a whole. Yet they're man- manipulated by the half-truths of a callous, vengeful man. Notice he doesn't convey things in his retelling of the story, though we know it. He doesn't convey his own cowardice. His decision to sacrifice his concubine was his own. He desired to preserve his honor, not hers. He leaves out his refusal to accept his father's hospitality. Ultimately, he frames himself as the victim when he's anything but one. His guilt is closer to that of the wicked men of Gabeah than to the murdered woman. And so we are just as easily manipulated by talking heads and liars who will say anything for personal gain, for self-preservation, or vengeance. We in turn must rely on God's word as our sole rule of faith and practice. No other voice will lead us into lasting hope, true joy, and abundant love. This is why we need a righteous king who will save us by leading us into God's word, by revealing the eternal life that comes through it. We also need a righteous king that will save us from tragic unity. Then all the people stood united and said, None of us will go to his tent or return to his house. Now this is what we will do to Gabeah. We will attack it. For the first time in the book of Judges, all the people gathered to wage war against an enemy. The nation never unified this extent to obey God's will to drive the Canaanites from the land. There was always a tribe, a group of people, someone missing. So no one unified under Barak, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, or Samson. This unity is impressive, but it's ultimately tragic. God's explicit will is not their cause for unity, but the have-truths of a vengeful man. That's what brings them together. And so if we as a church are to unify, it must be under the banner of Christ's gospel and his gospel alone. All other rallying cries ultimately lead to destruction. Only his will lead to life and flourishing. And so without the gospel, we cease being a church of God and become a mere social club of like-minded people. Number five, we need a righteous king who will save us from injustice. The gathered Israelites declare this, verse 13, hand over the wicked men in Gabeah so that we can put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to their fellow Israelites. They were, there were 700 fit young men who were left-handed among all these troops. All could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Interesting tidbit here. Ultimately, the injustice being presented is that wicked, the wicked, are protected. And the tribe of Benjamin becomes enemies of God. And so the interesting note made by the author is the description of Benjamin's elite skirmishers. They're elite warriors. Now, the Benjamin means son of the right hand. Yet their elite warriors are left-handed. And they do not miss. Do you know what the Hebrew word for not miss is? You know it. Just don't know you know it. It's the word sin. The tribe of honor relies on left-handed warriors who do not sin. And yet what are they doing? They're defending wicked sinners. And so do you see the irony the author intends, the judgment he's issuing towards them? Benjamin defends sinners and they have no honor. Indifference to sin is something we long to rid ourselves with of as a church. We hope for a day when all wrongs will be righted and every injustice will meet a just judge. 
Yet until that day comes, we hope to be the ones described as the ones who do not miss. May it be said of us that we are the ones who do not sin and do not defend the indefensible. We also need, number six, a righteous king to save us from the destruction of New Sodom. The men of Israel turned back against other Benjamites and killed them with their sword. The entire city, the animals, and everything that remained. They also burned all the cities that remained. Like Sodom before, only a few were spared from the bloodlust of Israel. 600 men hiding in the hills are all that remained of God's tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, and the defenders of injustice. But like them, we as human beings are destined for judgment and ultimate destruction. But will God save us? Will God leave a remnant? Will some of us be spared? Yes. Yes, he will. More on this at the last point. Number seven, we need a righteous king who will save us from foolish oaths. Verses one and five of chapter 21. The men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mizpah. None of us will give his daughter to a Benjamite in marriage. For a great oath had been taken that anyone who had not come to the Lord at Mizpah would certainly be put to death. These two oaths issued here, at the very least, oaths are indicating God's people are assuming God's will. One thing to make note in the story of going to war, they never ask God if they should go to war. They only ask him first, who should fight first? It is only after a couple defeats that they go, God, should we continue? I think that is a judgment against them while they lose the first two battles. And so these oaths that they issue are more than likely a way to entice God to act on their behalf. We see this earlier in Judges. Therefore, these oaths are foolish attempts at being noble before God. And so their folly is confirmed when these oaths, these self-imposed constraints, they begin to chafe at them because they are sorry. They have sorrow, and they're sorry that they've wiped out a, a tribe of Benjamin. Oh, where can we get wives? Look what Proverbs 19 says about foolish zeal and lacking of knowledge. Again, chapter, I don't know why chapters 19s just keep popping up here, but apparently just read every chapter 19 and you'll be all right. Even zeal is not good without knowledge, and the one who acts hastily sins. A person's own foolishness leads him astray, yet his heart rages against the Lord. And so the passion of the Israelites does not produce wisdom, but foolishness because they lack God's the knowledge of God's will and word. They vow not to let their daughters marry a Benjamite. Then, a couple moments later, they cry and mourn that there are no wives for the Benjamites to marry. Well, you killed them all. They set out to do what all legalists do at this point. They look for loopholes. They issue a foolish oath and then spend all of their time figuring out, when does this oath not apply? When am I no longer under the constraint of this? We need a righteous king to also save us from casting blame. Back in the third verse of Proverbs 19, the Lord wrote, A person's own foolishness leads him astray. His heart rages against the Lord. So the gathered tribes of Israel, at the result of the destruction of Benjamin, cry out to the Lord. They commit a blasphemy. Look what verse 3 says. Why? Lord God of Israel, has it occurred that one tribe is missing in Israel today as if it was God's fault? They didn't inquire whether his will. Now it happened. And so the people cry out to God for answers. Why did you let us do this? Why was it necessary for us to wipe out Benjamin? Why did we make this oath to end the line of Benjamin? 
It's no different than our first father. Upon eating the, the fruit, said and blamed God, it was this woman you gave me that led me astray. Sin continues. God is not to blame for our sins or the sins committed against us, but God will lead us out of it. Number nine, we need a righteous king to save us from patterns of wickedness. The sin that so easily entangles also so quickly continues. Throughout our story, we witness sinful patterns that seem only to gain momentum, not lose it. One argument between a man and a woman led to a citywide problem, escalating into a tribal crisis, only to become a disaster for the entire nation. Sin only gives way to more sin. The Apostle Paul will warn the Galatians of this in chapter 6, verses 7 through 10. I, I encourage you to read it with me. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially of those who belong to the household of faith, especially for those who are in the family. God is not the fool. One can't make fun of God and pull a fast one on him. The way God has made it is that sin brings forth destruction. So if we plant sin in our life in one form or another, we will reap destruction as a result of it. Look at this story that we've recounted. One woman's murder leads to the death of tens of thousands in battle. One rape and abduction led to the rape and kidnapping of over 600 women sanctioned by the elders of Israel themselves. One foolish oath by those same elders leads to the extermination of an entire village. One man's cowardice leads to a woman's death. One town's inhospitality leads to their slaughter. Where there is no king, everyone does what seems good to them. Or to put it in our vernacular of today, does whatever feels good. The elders were to lead the people and to safeguard the sacred. The Levitical priests were ministers of worship, sacrifice, and the promotion of godliness amongst all the people. Yet the elders and priests do what seemed good in their eyes and ultimately abandon what is good in God's. And what has been reaped? Destruction. Firsthand, these three chapters are the proof of Galatians 6 and 7. Plant sin, reap destruction. Plant righteousness, reap life, flourishing and so the wicked action found in these pages of Judges ultimately isn't the most egregious thing in this book. It is bad. I revile what we read in here. I feel uncomfortable seeing the pain, the anguish, the sin. No argument about that. But the most egregious wickedness in this book is that people determine their own standard of righteousness. People are their own standard. And so the wickedness we see in these chapters has found fertile soil in the heart. We need a righteous king to save us from ourselves. In these final chapters, you know what's missing? Two things, ultimately. The first is any mention of Canaanites or foreign oppressors. If you recall, the pattern of judges is God's people would live wickedly. God would put an oppressor over their life, oppress them. They would get tired of it. 
They would call out to God for deliverance. He would raise up a judge, and then they would live righteously until they lived unrighteously. And this pattern continues. In these chapters, there are no foreign oppressors. There is no crying out for deliverance. Why? Well, the author wants to clarify that God's people are their own worst enemies. Daniel Block says it clearly. It's not the enemies outside who threaten the soul, but the Canaanite within. The Canaanites amplified the sinfulness and their rebellion to an extent, yes. But the crescendo of judges is for us to recognize that the wickedness doesn't reside outside of us. It always has been at home within our heart. And so God's will for the Israelites to drive the Canaanites out from the promised land was not to remove temptation from them first. Their first order of obeying that command was to place within them devotion to him as their king and their lord to be obedient people, to know that flourishing life comes through obedience, not through doing what seems good. And so the other thing, the other recognition of what's missing in this are names. If you were to read these three chapters, only one name is mentioned in chapter 20, and it's a priest, the grandson of Aaron, to give us a a, a chronological anchor of when this event took place in the life of Israel. But everyone else is nameless. The Levite, the concubine, the elders, the men of Gabeah, the host that takes them in, the servant, we know none. Why? Why are names absent? For there are plenty of names throughout the book. Why now? These chapters are a mirror for us, a check and balance to evaluate our heart, for us to inquire if we are any of these people. Am I the Levite who is selfish? Am I the host with twisted morality? Am I the abused and discarded? Am I the woman who runs away when she's angry? Am I insensitive to sin and suffering? Am I the defender of injustice? Am I the fool who curses God? Am I the zealot blinded by vengeance? Am I a leader looking for loopholes? Am I the hedonist looking for pleasure? Am I the worshiper of an idol? Am I the king over my own life? See, the anonymity within these chapters shows the dehumanization of God's people when they are enslaved to sin. When sin rules and reigns in our heart, we become less human. And so the individual's value as an image bearer is wiped out. Not totally, but women become property. Inhabitants of cities become acceptable casualties. And self-preservation is everything. We become animals. And so another way to view it is the de-imaging of God in the person. And so this reality is nothing new. It began long ago in the garden when the serpent deceived our first parents with a simple lie. If you want to be like God, you must disobey him. If you want to enjoy what it's like to be God, you must do what seems good to you. Look at this fruit. It looks good to eat, doesn't it? Doing what feels good is not what it means to be human. But it is the means by which we become less than human. And so the Apostle Paul will quote the Psalms in Romans, conveying the depravity of the human heart and why we need to be saved from ourselves. When Paul writes, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless There is no one who does what is good, not even one. 
And so the author of Judges and Paul himself are repeating these stories and conveying these truths that we need a righteous king who will save us from ourselves. We can't save ourselves from wicked perversion in us, let alone around us. We need a righteous king who can. And so this self-destruction that comes as a result of our sin, our inclinations to sin, that isn't the depth of what we need saving from. There is something greater, something far more perilous, something that our sin has brought upon us. We need a righteous king who will save us from the wrath of God. Our sin has brought upon us God's wrath. Paul writes in Romans 1, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. God's wrath is the proper and just response towards image bearers who have gone astray, rebelled against his rule. Image bearers who have become self-gods doing what seems best in their eyes. If we read Leviticus 19, as we read early again, if you think about it, Israel did have a king. God was their king. He always was. And so why does the author find it necessary to say there was no king in Israel? What does he mean? There were many kings in Israel. It was every individual person, rulers of their own life. And where did that begin? Again, in the garden. It started when a serpent tempted Adam and Eve, saying, take and eat this fruit. And then came guilt, shame, hiding, jealousy, leading to murder. And so God's right response would be to judge and sentence all to death, but he did something else instead. When you read Genesis 19 through 21, you come to the end and there is a great desire within our soul for some reason to say, God, wipe them from the earth. Do away with these people. But he shows mercy. As he showed Adam and Eve mercy. As he shows you and I mercy. And so if God were to wipe out the Israelites as a result of what takes place in these chapters, what is the hope and encouragement for us if he were to do so? that God just can't stand wickedness. But because he shows them mercy and the depth of the, despite the depth of their wickedness, what does that mean for you and I? What is he willing to endure and patiently wait to lead us out of? Our own wickedness that we conjure in our heart. God desires to save. God shows mercy. And so despite their actions, God will bring forth a king, King David, who will set the stage for our great King Jesus once and for all, who will save through his death, burial, and resurrection. He is the righteous king who upholds the law and saves us from all sorts of unrighteousness. And how did he do it? By bearing the weight and punishment of God's wrath on the cross. And then he offers his life to us. In Romans chapter 5, 8 and 9, Paul conveys, but God proves his own love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have been, now been justified by his love, we will be saved through him from wrath. Amen. And so we receive that gift by believing in Jesus as Lord and Messiah, by professing with our mouth and believing with our heart, we are saved. And so today we remember that gift. You remember the serpent tempted our first parents. It looks good, doesn't it? It feels good, take and eat. But Jesus redeems that phrase on the night he was betrayed in the upper room with his disciples. He says, this is my body broken for you. 
take and eat. Believe and partake in me. And so I invite the band to come on up, the worship band. We get to take communion this morning. We get a time to remember the pivotal event in history where a righteous king came and did things on our behalf that we could not do, that leads to our salvation from the wrath of God, from our own destructive tendencies, from patterns of wickedness, and the list goes on. And so I would love for you to consider taking the communion elements if you're a believer. The Lord has told us to let the elements pass and to not take it in an unworthy manner or if you're not saved or you'll reap judgment on your head as a result. But for those of you who are going to take communion, this is the time for us to confess and to lay before our righteous king's feet our sin and condemnation, the things that we have done to break his will and his word and has brought destruction upon our life. I plead with you, confess, lay these down on your king's feet, for in return he gives you his life and resurrection and the transformation of being more human than you were before. And so we encourage you to keep the elements until all have received them. But please examine your heart, confess your sins, and receive the grace and mercy of a righteous king who desires to save. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, I pray for my brothers and sisters today. Lord, would you establish in all of us patterns of righteousness, not patterns of wickedness. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here that we can have a time to confess to lay before your throne uh, our wickedness, our sin, our depravity, so that we may let go of the destruction that is being caused in our life because of that sin. So Lord, lead us swiftly to our knees to be humble, to call upon you who, who is the Lord and Savior of our life. For we know that you have told us time and time again, you are the Lord our God. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen.